Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. If you would follow along in your copy of God's word. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? They said, We're from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening... He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. You may be seated.
Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful today for your rain that you have provided to renew and replenish the earth. And in like fashion, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather in your name. And we pray that your spirit indeed would refresh and renew our souls. We need you each and every moment, each and every day. As we journey through this world, it's broken, it's in despair, and we are aliens, and we desperately need your guidance, we need your empowerment, we need your grace guiding us each step of the way. We pray that our time here today will both prepare us for this journey to excel still more for your glory, and that indeed your name would be honored through us and your glorious gospel advanced. Now, Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, spirits willing to obey, ready to obey, eager to obey every word of your truth, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it did my heart good to see this morning those young families as they commissioned their children, their parenting to the Lord's guidance, direction, and empowerment in the days to come. There are going to be lots of mistakes made. Let's just own that, right? Parents are going to make mistakes. The children will make mistakes. But we serve a God who excels even when we make mistakes, even when we disobey. And the passage this morning gives us a lesson, 101, if you will, in this truth. I read about two Spanish con men who attempted to sell a forged Goya painting and how that backfired on them. After their client, supposedly a Arabic sheik, paid them $1.7 million of Swiss francs that were counterfeit banknotes, actually. So you get the picture. The men were selling a forged painting, and they were paid in Xerox-copied banknotes. The only one who made out with any money was the middleman, who brokered the deal, then vanished with 300,000 borrowed euros in the whole con, and the two con men were arrested on top of that. Our text today focuses on two guys that qualify as bona fide con men. We've already been introduced to Jacob and his shenanigans. Today, we get a look at his alter ego, a man who will give him some of his own medicine, that is his uncle, his mother's brother, Laban. So I want to tell you, show you three things here going on in this passage and then want to make some application, see how it fits our lives, how it speaks to us. Let's think just a minute about Jacob's journey. First of all, as we discovered last week, he's been exiled from the land of promise. He deceived and conned his own father and brother using this brazen deceit He stole Esau's birthright and blessing. And as a result, Esau was pretty angry. In fact, Esau threatened to kill him. 
Now, many have asked me in recent weeks, what's the difference between the birthright and the blessing? So I want to take just a moment and see if I can bring a little more clarity to this. The birthright was given to the eldest son, typically. He earned it by simply being born the eldest. The birthright was receiving the uh, position of patriarch of the family. So he became the person who would be responsible for the family. And he was promised a double portion of the inheritance. Being the first, he had the responsibility to care for the mother and the family name. So therefore, he got more in the inheritance. A blessing could be given to anyone and often was. We'll see toward the end of our study through Genesis where Jacob will bless all of his sons. He will put a blessing upon them. But the blessing could differ from one to the other. Sometimes it involved a blessing. Sometimes it involved a curse. But it was a pronouncement about the future, something that was going to take place in the future. So you get the idea. Birthright, by birth, has the right to the family, leadership role, and inheritance. The blessing, something that the patriarch gives to the next generation that's going to affect them in the days to come. So Jacob had stolen both of those from Isaac and from Esau. So Esau is pretty mad. He says, I'm going to kill him. As soon as our dad has been buried and put to rest, I'm going to kill my brother. Rebecca heard about this, and she, she told uh, Isaac, I mean, uh, told Jacob what was in store for him. So she said, you need to go away. There's two things at work here. Your brother's angry. He's going to kill you. You need to leave. And secondly, you can't marry any of the local girls. You need to go get a girl from our family tree. So you need to go to Haran, uh, Haran where the um, family resides, and there find a wife for yourself. This will give Esau time to cool off. And then you can come back in a few days. She greatly underestimated what was at work here. Now, we understand Esau's anger and his resentment. He was cheated out of what should have been his, what could have been his. And he was weak in character. He's fleshly. He's susceptible to anger. He's susceptible to vindictive ideas and thoughts and desires. Esau's threat and the need for a wife put Jacob on the journey to Haran. Now, Abraham and Sarah's people, as I said, lived there in Haran, and his objectives were twofold. One, to have Esau cool off, and two, to find a wife. His exile and loneliness primed him for the dream that God would work in his life. While all of this looks to us like this is something that should not have happened, could not have happened, would not have happened had he done the right things. From God's perspective, God is using all of this to accomplish his purposes. The deceit, the con, all these things, God didn't create it. God didn't uh, ordain it necessarily. God uses it to still accomplish his purposes. In other words, it cannot thwart what God intends to do. That's what we need to take away. And God uses this deceit and this separation and exile for Jacob to begin to get his attention. And he began with the dream we talked about last week that likely marked the beginning of Jacob's spiritual life. 
Speaking of which, that brings us to the second thing. Let's think about Jacob's spiritual condition at this point. He's not fully transformed, even though I do believe that he made a commitment to follow God in the previous passage. On the heels of that dream, if God is a God like this, a God who's going to do these things, then I certainly will call him my God. I will follow him. But he's not fully transformed in his attitudes and actions. He's still immature, but God's not hindered by that. Rather, he works through these things and uses these things as he establishes the nation, which is the fulfillment of his promise he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob in last week's passage. In Genesis 28, Jacob seems to have this meaningful encounter with Yahweh, but he's still operating according to self-will and self-dependence. Now, this, rem- this narrative reminds us of another narrative. You remember when there was another search for another wife that took place. I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 24. Hold your place there in 29 and turn back to Genesis chapter 24. You remember when Abraham decided it was time that Isaac had a wife after his wife Sarah had died? I want to point out a few verses here for you, and I want us to read those together, and you listen carefully. Beginning with verse 2 of Genesis chapter 24, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Move down to verse 12. He, that is Eliezer, who is the servant of Abraham, said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Verse 14. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed to be your servant, Isaac, for your servant, Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking or praying, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Naor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Verse 26. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Verse 35, the Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids, and camels, and donkeys. 
The narratives are similar, but the circumstances, the details are much different. There is a clear contrast between how Jacob proceeded and how Eliezer went about their objectives. Genesis 29.10 says, when Jacob saw Rachel, what did he do? Did he thank the Lord? Did he praise the Lord? Did he have any thoughts about the Lord? No. He got up. And he went and he uncovered the well. He watered Laban's sheep. After he had already been told, this is not customary. This is not the way it's done. All the sheep must gather. And when all the sheep are gathered, then we do this together. But Jacob, we see, is still being uh, operating by his own uh, trust abilities in himself, his own efforts, what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it, etc. His actions reveal no Godward thoughts, prayers, or praises. Eliezer was constantly talking to the Lord, trusting the Lord, asking the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord. Jacob's not there yet. Jacob's still thinking about himself operating according to himself. Now, when Laban heard the news that Jacob had arrived after this encounter with Rachel, we know Laban, we know his ilk, right? We saw that before. We see that he's going to be just like Jacob in so many ways. So when he gets word that another one of Abraham's descendants has shown up, what goes into his mind? Oh, it's great to have a family reunion. I don't think so. I think Laban said, you know what? The last time Abraham sent someone here, I prospered pretty well. I came out with lots of goodies from the bag. Let me go see what they have brought me this time. But he found Jacob empty-handed. Jacob didn't come with anything. Jacob's alone. He has nothing. To which Laban must have asked, why are you here? If you didn't bring me anything, if you didn't come to bless the family, why are you here? Then the text says, he related to Laban all these things. What things could he possibly have related to Laban? I think that Jacob had to share the only things he could share, which is exactly what had happened. How he had conned his brother out of his birthright, out of his blessing, how he had had fragmented the family, how he was under a death sentence from his brother. And now he needs Laban. He didn't come with any gifts. He comes because he needs Laban. But you know, the interesting thing here, and I'm not surprised by it, is Laban seems to be impressed with Jacob. You are my bone and my flesh because you are my relative. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it sounds to me like he says, you know what? You and me, were a lot alike. You didn't fall far from the tree, did you? We can help each other. We can help each other a lot. He's proposing an alliance. What do you want? What do you need from me? Jacob's got one thing on his mind, Rachel. I want Rachel. 
I need Rachel. I will serve you for seven years for Rachel. Now, I'm not going to take a poll today and ask how many of you guys worked seven years for your wife. Some of you will say, well, I'm still working. (laughs) Seven years, that's a pretty steep price for a woman, right? (laughs) I know, I'm really stirring it up. This is going to lead to some really nice conversations over lunch. But it brings us to consider Jacob's hard lessons. Jacob learned some hard lessons. God is working through all of this deceit and this this, uh, soap opera that's unfolding. God is still at work, but he's also working on Jacob. It's mysterious how God uses our own flaws and our own sin to to shape and to mold us, to sanctify us while still accomplishing his purposes. Some things I want to point out to you. Jacob first deceived his father, and now he's going to be deceived by his father-in-law. You think that's just happenstance? I don't. The agreement was for Rachel, but Laban needed for Leah to marry. Not that he mentioned that. For seven years, he didn't mention that. I wonder if it had, would have changed the deal. The agreement was for Rachel, but Laban needed for Leah to marry first. Jacob had posed as the elder in order to steal the birthright and blessing. Laban substitutes the elder for the younger Rachel to steal a husband for Leah, who evidently wasn't easy to marry off. Laban tricks his own daughter Rachel in this deal, which had to be pretty awkward. Later, Rachel will trick Laban to steal his gods. Laban deceives Jacob in order to get both daughters married. Later, Jacob deceives Laban and carries away both daughters and all the children that he had with them from Laban. Rebekah covered Jacob with skins of kids goats, kid goats to steal his brother's property. Jacob's sons will dip Joseph's coat in kid goat's blood to steal Jacob's favorite son. Do you see what's taking place here? God turns these things, these these connivings, these deceits and uses them to work in and shape and accomplish his purposes in spite of these things. The deception is continual and impactful. Deceivers get deceived often. And God uses these sinful acts to bring about refinement and accomplish his purpose. Even our repentance and trusting in Christ does not free us from our sinful ways, does it? One day we will be like Christ, but now we are more like Jacob. But God works his promises in our lives and through our lives. He's not thwarted or stymied by our flaws, our deception, or our self-will. That's pretty encouraging to me. Because I stumble and bumble and falter and fail so often. And sometimes the enemy whispers to me, you know, God can't use you. God won't use you. You're not usable. You're damaged goods. But I want you to be encouraged to know that God can fulfill his promises even when we sin, even when we feel guilt, even when we experience shame. 
Moses was writing this book that we know as Genesis. He was writing it for the primary benefit at that time of the Israelite nation. They'd been enslaved for 400 years, influenced by Egypt's culture, by Egypt's beliefs, by Egypt's prosperity. Even to the point that when the going got a little difficult, when the going got tough, when they failed or faltered, they pined to return to captivity in Egypt. They were ready to give up on God and ready to give up on themselves. And they continually did sin against God even after he delivered them. At Sinai, God barely had the stipulations put before them of what he expected his people to be and to do, to which they agreed, and promptly they sinned and broke them. They often grumbled and complained about water, about food, about leadership, and about God. They were stiff-necked toward God's plans and purposes and direction. With every failure, they knew disappointment. With every failure, they knew guilt. With every failure, they knew shame. They expected God to give up on them. They expected God to abandon them. Just let us go back to Egypt. Just let us go back and finish out our days enslaved to the Egyptians. At least our bellies will be full and we won't die out here in this God-forsaken wilderness. God did discipline them, but he never abandoned them. Not one time. In fact, he used their stumbling and their rebellion to refine them to accomplish his promises. Moses is pointing back to Abraham for these people. To Abraham's struggles, particularly how God kept his own promises even when Abraham didn't. To remind them, even though they had promised and fell, that God would still keep his promises. Isaac failed. Jacob was a scoundrel. Laban was a scoundrel. And it resulted in a messy situation, as you see. And we'll continue unpacking next week. (laughs) It hit me. Jacob went to avoid his brother's wrath and to get a wife. He ended up with four wives and a house full of trouble. You see, God wasn't surprised nor deterred by all that happened. In fact, he worked through the sin, the shame, the cons and lies to establish the nation Israel that he had promised Abraham. Later, Jacob's sons, their envy, their deceit led them to fake Joseph's death and sell him as a slave. And God used their deception to save the nation from a severe famine. God even used David's egregious adultery and deception and murder of Uriah. He brought David into marriage with Bathsheba and gave him a son called Solomon, which furthered Israel's prosperity 
and continued to complete the promise that he'd made to Abraham. The greatest deception of all was that perpetrated by Judas there in the garden as he betrayed the Son of God with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. The chief priests manipulated and solicited false testimonies. It was a devious and deceitful plan to murder Jesus. Pilate knew he was innocent, but deceived himself into believing that he could control all of this and that he could prosper through all of this. God used these evil deceptions to fulfill his promise to bless all nations through Abraham. You may think your deceptions and sin have destroyed God's plans and promises. The guilt and the shame that you feel each and every day may be eating away at your mind and your heart. So much so you expect God to abandon you. You expect God to give up on you. You expect God to throw you to the trash heap and say, I can't and won't use you. But instead, he has condescended to suffer and to pay your debt of sin and deception, to become your substitute on the cross, to take your sin upon himself that he might give you righteousness that reconciles you to God. Do you have it? Do you have that righteousness today? Or are you still looking for a loophole in your own works and deeds? There's only one way to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man... No one comes to God but through me. You must have your sin removed by my substitutionary sacrifice. And you must have my righteousness that I earned for you. Believe the gospel. Repent of your sin and trust only in Christ. Look, we all falter. We all are products of deception But God uses and works through it all. And Christ is the ultimate proof of that. Christ is the only proof of that. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are, for what you have done, for what you continue to do for us and in us. Lord, we find it easy just to look at the things on the surface and fail to see what you're doing. Lord, to accomplish, to fulfill your plans, your purposes for your name's sake. I pray this morning that the gospel might be real and powerful and personal in each of our lives. That for the one who is here this morning and does not know you, as Savior, that today will be the day, even now, that the Holy Spirit is drawing and working and regenerating a fallen, broken heart to make it new again, to bring blessing through Christ into that life. Not just for a day, not for a week, but for all of eternity. For those of us, Lord, who profess to follow you, declare that you are our Savior Proclaim you to be our Lord who falter and fail and are frustrated every day. And Lord, ready to give up 
even believing the lies that you can't and won't use us, that you can and will abandon us, we ask for forgiveness. We ask, Lord, for renewal. We ask for your spirit to strengthen and empower our hearts and minds, set us free from the lies of the enemy, from the guilt, the shame that we bring upon ourselves, and to know that Christ's blood is sufficient for all sin. And that we might be able to walk today and tomorrow and every day in the newness of our relationship with Christ. May it be so, Lord, for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.